Thank you very much for choosing to listen to this podcast. Like a box of chocolates, you never quite know what you're going to get. But there's more likely to be some arcane Doctor Who-based meanderings than a toffee nut cracknell or a strawberry fondant. So welcome to Indefinable Magic. A pleasant enough way to pass the time, I hope, if you have a vague interest in Doctor Who. And it is written and performed by me, Toby Hayden. Tonight's episode, Credit, where credits are due. Credits are very important to actors. There was a story, perhaps apocryphal, that the illustrious theatre actor Simon Russell Beale was in a play with a noted actress, and her name was displayed in lights outside the theatre, whilst his was not. When his agent inquired why, he was told that as Simon Russell Beale is quite a long name, it wasn't possible to render his moniker aglow because there's not enough neon. A prosaic response to why not everyone gets their name in lights. But listen up, confession time. Some people practice their Oscar speeches. Some people play air guitar. Some people snog their pillow. We all have our little peccadilloes that, robbed of context, would look silly to an eavesdropper or a spy. Those things we do in private that take us to a place of fantasy and the fantastical where we momentarily indulge our imaginings with whatever is available. Quiet at the back. I have had many over the years, including miming winning many a test cricket match with a lofted six over mid-wicket, delivering an expert kung fu to subdue and humiliate that bloke who was mean to me on the tube escalator that time, and bravely holding off the bad guys whilst mortally wounded in order to give my friends time to escape from an advancing horde of aliens. You know, the usual kind of thing people old enough to be entrusted with jury duty, children and a credit card, get up to. And to be fair, it was when I was a little young for those things, I would often read the credits of Doctor Who stories out loud in a dramatic fashion. Like the credits for a radio plays, but for the TV post-show team sheet. Now, I can well believe many people have done the cricket fantasy and the kung fu shizzle and the self-sacrifice malarkey that I mentioned above, but that last one, the credits jazz... I'm not so sure. Now, I hope with a lot of these podcasts that whilst telling of experience I have had, there will be elements of them that chime with those of different ages, backgrounds and genders, just because, hey, we're all Doctor Who fans. But I'm not 100% certain this reading the credit out louds thing is one of those. And by not 100% certain, what I really mean is 100% not certain, if one can be such a thing. But sitting there as the credits played and intoning Doctor Who, Patrick Troughton, Tobias Vaughan, Kevin Stoney, Isabel Sally Faulkner, that's the Invasion episode 8 by the way, yeah, I suspect I may have generated more of a feeling of kinship with you lot had I confessed to, I don't know, secretly knitting a bungalow, making a pass at a chicken or perpetrating random driveway blamange attacks on the French. But I did. A lot. Uh, Red credits, that is, not the blamange French thing. I don't know, it made me feel good. And it was like I was acknowledging the work of the people whose skills had brought my favourite programme to me. I spent a lot of my childhood alone, usually with only Doctor Who for company, in the form of books or magazines or, most excitingly, episode guides with cliffhangers and cast lists. And sometimes, when you're alone, you hanker to, well, you know, take pleasure in 
looking at magazines and saying things out loud. Well, I do anyway. I'm an actor, so, you know, saying things out loud kind of counts as practice in the way that fledgling footballers play keepy-uppy, novice chefs practice knife skills and wannabe MPs nick their schoolmates' dinner money and then make out it's the victim's fault for not locking their pencil case or for looking vulnerable. And anyway, when I was young, I wasn't talking, I was listening. I liked the tone of voice radio announcers would give to credits that, because it was radio, had to be read out loud. The aural landscape of my childhood, the shipping forecast on Radio 4, with its beguiling but peculiar names, Fisher, Dogger, German Bite, names that, without the right BBC gravitas, might accidentally suggest to the unsuspecting listener that they'd suddenly teleported into a party where car keys and hats are more important than dips and crudités. The test cricket commentary with its characters and banter, the weekend comedies populated by clever-sounding people who seemed like fun to be around, always provided something comforting and slightly paternal, especially that calm, assured manner with which this information was vocally imparted. And the plays and dramas had actors in and it was fun hearing their names read out and because there was a BBC radio repertory company, the same actors' names would crop up again and again on the credits of plays. Christian Rodsker, Don McCorkindale, I wonder if he's related to Simon. Reader, he wasn't. Peter Craze, oh, I wonder if he's related to Michael. Reader, he was. And he was in the Space Museum, The War Games and Nightmare of Eden. It sounded like an important job, reading the credits, and I liked hearing familiar names crop up, even though a lot of them turned out never to have done a Doctor Who. Well, that's OK. It's not like the Masons. I wasn't choosing to listen, by the way. Mum had the only radio in the house on, and it may as well have not had a dial, as it was stuck, like Queen Zanxia, in a permanent state of stasis on Radio 4. But you couldn't zone out, so you had to make it interesting for yourself, and so I did. So when I was left to my own devices, I became the Radio 4 announcer, but with the TV. I liked reading the credits of Doctor Who when the episodes ended. At first, it was a silent pleasure. It was part of the viewing experience. The programme was still going on, and you could digest what you had just seen as the names flashed up against the time tunnel and then the starscape backdrop of the closing credits. And you weren't going to go anywhere whilst that music played. And the credits were big and bold and easy to read. Oh, those were the days. I remember struggling with the word. What was it? Executive. Odd word. Executive producer. It seemed like an important job as it came near the end. If you were near the beginning or the end, you were important. In the middle, you got lost a bit and seemed to have to share your space with others. Executive. Nope, no idea. Then one day, bingo, executive, and another piece of life's jigsaw was found and placed in the correct position, making one's picture of the world slightly more complete. But it was the actors' names I liked reading best, because you knew you could see actors in other things. And I think I fantasised about being those people, I loved watching Doctor Who, but the idea that being part of it could be your job, what a life. These were people I was really interested in, 
and actors seen such fascinating, amazing people who lived in houses full of books and tapestries and had interesting stories to tell about mishaps on stage or fluffed lines on movie sets and brief, passionate love affairs that were incandescent when illuminating life on tour but had burned themselves out when home time beckoned. An actor's life seemed such fun and everyone seemed to have a marvellous time and to wear scarves and potter about creating anecdotes and being admired and falling in love with other actors. So the pillow talk was probably about rep or the lotus eaters or the perils of multi-camera studio work. I mean, what could be better? These actors were usually larger than life and had improbable sounding adventures with wayward props or scene-stealing animals. Oh, they must be such a happy lot, and not a bunch of neurotic pleasers with a nagging inner sense of unfulfilment and failure, the ever-present threat of penury and an innate propensity to fill the gaping abyss at the core of their soul with alcohol and dreams. Oh, no, sir, they wouldn't be anything like that. It all seemed miles away from me to the wilds of Shropshire where I was, with no family in the business, no cinema for about 40 miles, and trips to the theatre possible only when arranged by the school. Besides, to be an actor you had to have an equity card, and there was no way a boy from the countryside with no connections would ever get one of those without going to drama school, and that was really expensive, so all I could do was sit in my bedroom and act to an audience of none. But I liked watching actors too and I remembered all their names. So I'd watch the programmes and read the credits of them in case I could spot someone from Doctor Who. Every time I happened upon an article in Doctor Who magazine with a cast list, that information somehow stuck so that when I was perusing other shows, my synapses would click into place. Some programmes were great for Doctor Who actors. Bergerac especially. A series about a Jersey-based policeman solving crimes in front of fantastic scenery and lovely weather could be relied upon for a Huthesbor 4 each episode, and it was very helpful with its method of crediting its guest cast over a still image of them from the episode, which helped with identification in case you'd forgotten their character name. I remember being horrified that Ian Martyr only had about three lines when he popped up. Give me one good reason why I shouldn't smash your ugly face in. About three years in the nick here, Burke. You what? I'm a copper, you stupid great lummox. That was the exchange between him and Bergerac. What was he playing? What was it? Farmer? Cowman? Something like that. In one episode. I haven't seen it in decades, but that's my memory of it. And I recorded that bit when the episode was repeated. And the credits of that and other episodes of Bergerac with a high Who content. One had Marcus Scarman, Quillam, Thara from the Crotons, Girton from the Demons and a Monoptera in an episode where the main guest star was Nielsen from Warriors of the Deep. Wow! But then, what would you expect from a show which was created by Robert Banks Stewart, who wrote The Seeds of Doom and Terror of the Zygons, script edited by Chris Boucher, Face of Evil, Robots of Death, and Image of the Fendal, and produced by George Galazio, who'd worked on loads of Doctor Who? I mean, it practically was Doctor Who, Bergerac, just with tax dodgers instead of aliens, and Bergerac's fat cat ex-father-in-law Charlie Hungerford, a.k.a. Lord Ravensworth from Mark of the Rani, crowbarred into the storylines with even more contrivance than the master in season eight. Even rival show Robin of Sherwood, which seemed so much more adult than Doctor Who, it was very dark brown and had breathy Irish music and that grown-up filmic look that can only be described as having been made on film. The first episode of that was long and like a movie and had swearing in it and everything, 
and it was strange and beguiling, and there was a chap called John Abinary in it who played Hearn the Hunter, and I knew he'd been in the Ambassadors of Death because I'd seen a picture of him, and the Doctor and Liz and the Brigadier in Bessie in that story in Doctor Who magazine once, and oh, I was really getting the hang of remembering actors and creating connections in my head without trying. Well, come on, it was a talent of sorts. It never seemed to have any practical use, nor did anyone ever seem that impressed if, say, the credits rolled on Edge of Darkness and I announced to the room, oh, Sean Caffrey, he was Lord Palmerdale in the horror of Fang Rock, but, well, it was something I could do. My fascination with actors' names had a practical purpose in regard to my personal engagement with Doctor Who, though. Much of my early experience of Doctor Who was reading the target novelizations of stories otherwise unavailable. Note for younger listeners, in those days, the idea that you could own physical copies of the episodes and store them on digital media was as fanciful as shoes that kiss you, bananas that can talk, or piano trousers. Part of the mental stimulation of reading those books, which I credit with most of my learning of words or facts and which provided some of the most memorable and enjoyable experiences of my childhood, was to imagine the characters and that was far easier to do if I had an idea of what the actor who played those characters might have looked like. Anything that can give your imagination a push is helpful, though, especially when every waking moment is spent trying to picture those images you could never see. It wasn't just Doctor Who magazine, with its episode guides and archives, but to which I had limited access. I had to glean what I could from other sources, The Peter Haining books that came out every Christmas would mention actors in some of their story coverage, for example. A friend had the Doctor Who programme guide, so I could dip into that to look up a specific character when I got the chance. But I never managed to get the book myself. That seems mad now. A book of cast lists could almost have been made with me specifically in mind. But I had to memorise my actors softly, softly, piece by piece, one name at a time. I remember when he lent it to me one lunchtime, flicking through to see who played Van Lutyens in Fury from the Deep because he seemed like such a cool character based on the Target novel I had just read, as did the fact that he had a foreign name which made him seem esoteric and exciting in a series where Earth people were often called things like Smedley and Perkins and Jenkins, surnames almost entirely created to be possessed by penpushers, officials or junior ranks in the army up until the end of the 1970s and no later. It's all been hushed up, but there must have been some mass cull in 1979 as the government desperately tried to save a few quid by exterminating minor civil servants and last corporals and inadvertently wiped out entire bloodlines. When they came for the Smedleys, I said nothing. Anyway, just having a foreign name made a character feel like they were in a proper, tough, grown-up drama. Terry Nation was great at that with his Dortmunds and his Kurt Gantries, and anyway... Van Lutyens, someone I had only just heard of because Fury from the Deep came quite late in my Who consumption, but as soon as it did, I gorged on it, and Van Lutyens was my favourite character because he stood up to Robson and bravely went to the Impeller, and I really liked him but had no idea who had played him, and... Well, of course it was. I had no idea that it would be, but as soon as I found out it was, well, it made so much sense. John Abenary. He soon became my very favourite actor, not just because of his performances, but because he always seemed to turn up at the right time. What it meant, though, was that the names stuck in my head. I never sat down to learn this stuff, cranking the information into my brain like swatting for an exam. 
but in there it went, gradually assimilating itself into that part of my memory banks which have swelled to contain the name of every actor who appeared in classic Doctor Who. Said swelling is clearly offset by the shrinkage in the areas that store, say, what I'm meant to be doing today, where I put those keys, and how not to screw up important social interactions. But anyway, for the boy who'd yet to become that man, there were exciting discoveries to be made. There was no greater thrill than recognising an actor's name on a list and connecting it to something I had seen somewhere else. How amazing it must be to be Frank Jarvis, leaping from the war machines to the power of Kroll to Underworld, which also had Richard Shaw in it, who was in Frontier in Space and the Space Museum, which had Ivor Salter in it, who was in The Mythmakers and Black Orchid, and oh, I've seen Black Orchid, and he was the sergeant, and I remember him, I know that character, and if only I'd known then that the sergeant had been in the old black and white days when Doc 2 was good, because I like it now, but all those ones from long ago I haven't seen were probably better. Oh, I'd have loved that! All of these actors went into my mental storehouse, and before I knew it, I could confidently recite any cast list anyone cared to ask me to recite. Uh, side note, no one was ever interested in asking me to recite a Doctor Who cast list, but nonetheless, had that eventuality arisen, I'd have been primed and ready for the task. So, I read the credits on everything, and was fortunate to grow up at a time when credits were readable, when programme channel bosses naively assumed that viewers being able to read was something to nurture and encourage, and that perhaps giving credit to the creatives who supply your channel with its output would maybe just be a polite act of professional courtesy. When Doctor Who repeats were shown on satellite on Super Channel, they did that awful thing of shrinking the credits in order to advertise what was coming next. What an uncivilised and horrible thing to do. Thank God that wasn't going to infest the mainstream channels and that, living in the UK, we wouldn't endure that terrible American practice of having credits that zip past at an unreadable speed. Awful. And I couldn't even imagine a combination of the two, shrunk and speedy, impractical and insulting. Well, thank heavens that no public service broadcaster, for example, with standards, would ever consider doing something so deplorable. In fact, I was known to, if given a bootleg copy of a story which had shrunk credits or was an omnibus, edit in the fuller credits from an inferior copy because the sudden dive in quality at each episode's climax was a price worth paying to have the proper credits in the correct order at a size that was readable, out loud, for best effect. I got a dab hand with the pause button, which you pressed first, then record, which then tracked back 0.03 on the counter so I had to time it just right so I could splice the cut like a professional. My Hand of Fear omnibus from Super Channel, with the credits of an 8th generation episodical version, was perfect to the frame. The fact that one source was crystal clear and the other looked like black and white porridge being thrown at you in the fog with the sound recorded in the stomach of a hippo with indigestion didn't matter one jot. I remember a recent BBC bigwig, I'm not going to tell you her name, it seems only fitting, saying that only actors' mums were interested in who was in what. This is simply not true. People, and I mean normal people, people who go to work and do jobs and go to the pub without ever thinking, ooh, that bloke off the Beecham's advert was Unstoff in the Reboss operation but also a puppeteer on Spitting Image, what a CV. Normal people love going, isn't that so-and-so from so-and-so? They do it all the time. I had a flatmate at college who had a pathological desire to say that someone was someone who they clearly weren't. 
he swore blind that Stuart Bevan, espied in an advert, was Dennis Waterman, and having credits was the only way to prove to him that he was talking Tommy Rod and must never at any point be responsible for picking someone out of an identity parade lest a massive miscarriage of justice ensue. But anyway, I did briefly, before IMDB was invented, enjoy the status of being phoned up by friends, family and the family of friends and asked what they'd seen that bloke from tonight's casualty in before. I was useful once. IMDB killed the video star. It meant too that instead of experiencing disappointment when an episode ended, I had excitement because the names would reveal all sorts to me that I could then go away and think about. I was thrilled when, having watched a bootleg of my first orphaned episode from The Cobwebbed Vaults, The Underwater Menace Part 3, I noticed that Joseph First, playing Professor Zaroff, who makes such an impact on that episode, was, hang on, second in the credits. All the credits I was used to watching listed the Doctor first and the Companions next. So what was this chicanery that I kind of liked because it had a certain maverick flair to it? It was only after watching a few more 60s episodes that I noticed that characters were largely, after the Doctor, listed in order of appearance. But I'd hitherto had no idea. How exciting! I get very cross with credits now. It's an odd hill to die on, I know, but at least it's a hill that will have a memorial on it with names written there for all to see. Names that I'll probably stand there and read out loud. But there's nothing wrong with taking a moment to acknowledge and to appreciate the purveyors of the thing that has just made your day pass in a more interesting fashion. I think it's manners, courtesy, but it also psychologically winds you down from what you've just seen. It helps you to assimilate the drama or bid the comedy a fond farewell. Croft and Perry comedies knew just how to sign off, with their actors gifted a single caption as they waved goodbye or pulled a face at you as you learnt whom you had just been watching. Doctor Who never had the and credit either, a very important thing that, where an actor who wasn't the lead but was hefty enough to get a special notice for either playing a small cameo or having a good part but not being the star yet still needing some sort of special attention. My friend John Bruford and I still, to this day, refer to the American actor Paul Winfield as and Paul Winfield because he seemed to get an and credit in practically everything he was in and it was always a disappointment if he didn't. I remember feeling like we'd reached the point of no return when the series Spooks, uh, MI5 in the USA, ran without credits. This was because they were spies, so not having the names heightened the idea that these people were anonymous and in the shadows. Well, that's what Simon Crawford Collins and Jane Featherstone, the producers, said on the DVD extras. How do I know what Simon Crawford Collins and Jane Featherstone were called? Because they were captioned in massive letters on the DVD. So clearly knowing who some people are matters then, does it, guys? And you know what? No one has ever rung me up and asked, do you know who the executive producer of tonight's episode of The Bill was? And what else did they executive produce? And... I don't think this is residual ire on my part for not being able to pronounce the word executive for ages, by the way, though I've always been more comfortable with those lower down the food chain and I always manage to screw up my interactions with important people, so maybe it's kind of lingered. I remember being especially upset with Spooks, though, because in the very first episode of that series, Kevork Malikyan, 
that mighty actor who has a very peculiar death scene in The Wheel in Space and who has since been in every programme and film made in pretty much every country, from Mind Your Language to Indiana Jones to Homeland, was in it. And I was sad for him that his name wasn't in, well, if not lights, then copperplate gothic bold, or whatever font Spooks would have used had it not opted to have its cast list rendered in the televisual equivalent of invisible ink. I actually refused to watch Spooks after that, and only caught up with it some time later. And it's a fabulous series, with lovely turns from all sorts of who-types, from Kevin McNally as a neo-Nazi, to Lisa Bowerman as the Home Secretary's PA, to Jeff, your knighthood for services to character acting is long overdue, Rawl, Robert Glenister. Oh, there are all sorts of treats, and lots of very twisty-turny stuff, and even some great actors who, shock horror, haven't, or hadn't then but have now, been in Doctor Who. So I was cutting my nose off to spite my face. But if credits are supposed to break the spell, well, then what about opening titles, which it had, and, say, incidental music? Presumably spies don't run about Canary Wharf accompanied by a dramatic beat, a synth player behind them emphasising the action that they're undertaking. Nor, actually, when it comes to it, do they look like Matthew McFadden, Rupert Penry Jones and Keeley Hawes, but that's a whole other conversation. And hey, they're brilliant actors and there's not wrong with being sexy. So I'm told. Anyway, it's basically a list of ingredients, a credits list. If you took a bite out of a sandwich that you'd bought and you liked it, you'd look at the packaging and have a perusal of the ingredients to see what it was that was in it that had taken your fancy. And maybe you'd seek out more things with Thousand Island dressing in or surrounded by, what's that, Rye bread? Mmm. Well, you can't do that with TV anymore. The credits fly by, or are squashed to the side, so we can see what's coming up next. Enjoy that mind-bending sci-fi show? Stick around. Some people from a boy band will be remembering things. The wife of a rock star, a cricketer, and some TV presenters will be dancing. Or some members of the public will be caught on home video falling off ladders into their conveniently placed freezer. But even when there's no risk of your changing channels between programmes, the excuse they use to smash the credits into tiny pieces, essentially saying, we don't expect people to stay when writing appears, people are thick and should be treated as such, even iPlayer now flashes up alternative viewing before you've had a chance to grab your remote and press the button for, I'm happy where I am and digesting what I've just watched, thank you very much. It's the equivalent of the cinema usher tipping you out of your seat the second the film ends. Or the minute you've swallowed the last mouthful of your delicate main course of lobster and saffron linguine, the waiter shoving a treacle tart in your gob and saying, Go on, have this now! To continue the sandwich theme, if I may, it's like looking to see what it's made of, only to have the list of ingredients replaced with a big sticker saying, Oh, just sod off and buy a different sandwich right now, will you? You wouldn't enjoy a picture at an art gallery and look at the little accompanying plaque which says who painted it, only for the museum curator to cover it up or nick it, cackling, Go on, look at some different pictures as you charge after them, desperate to read if it was a Manet or a Monet or was worth any money. I think I'd be more relaxed about all this if I thought it might only be a worry for nerds like me and that normal people wouldn't care, but I'm not sure that's the case. 
I remember that the Matt Smith episode of The Time of Angels controversially had its cliffhanger and credits ruined by the too early injection of a Graham Norton avatar plugging what was up next, and so ruining the carefully constructed build-up and reveal that the whole preceding 50 minutes had been designed to climax at, and so wrenching the viewers from the drama too quickly. It was, I believe, stage two of the Norton invasion, after his spearhead into Doctor Who space in Rose. Furious. After enduring that, I went on stage almost immediately at the Frog and Bucket Comedy Club in Preston, not known for its BBC4-esque demographic, if I'm honest, and I ranted about this thing that had just happened, and I got a round of applause from the whole audience, who clearly agreed with me. I think people like those lists of names more than the execs give them <clears throat> credit for. And you know what? Even if they don't, there's nothing wrong with just saying, well, never mind, it's etiquette, it's better done this way, and that's how we're going to do it. Especially if you're a public service broadcaster with, you know, old-fashioned word alert, standards. Where are you from, Toby? 1952? Yeah, back then, yeah. But still, I grant you, my habit of reading the credits out loud is a bit odd, yes. That, I admit, is not shared by, and indeed would genuinely disconcert, the great unwashed. And sometimes, when enacting my, well, let's call it a perversion, why not? I'd read them, not in the order they were on screen, but in the order of whom I felt had made the most impact that episode. Or I'd give a special and, or an acknowledgement to an actor who had just died. Anything to make the credits punchy or different or emotional or exciting. A list of names. Exciting. Yes, that's me. And no. I don't understand it either. I suppose mathematicians see beauty in numbers. They see patterns and shapes mere mortals don't. Well, similar beauty and patterns can be seen in TV credits, not by mathematical geniuses, but by slightly lonely anoraks, who have never quite rationalised their complex relationship with, say, casts in alphabetical order. Are they egalitarian nirvana or boring dilution of star wattage? Hmm, the jury is out. I have recently actually looked into this, and diagnoses of OCD and ADHD have been banded about, but I've had enough labels and I don't need any more, so please don't write in. I'm prepared to leave the diagnosis as bit of a twat and leave it at that, to be honest. And hey, I'm a maverick. As a credits reader, I myself was no slavish adherent to the text. I was frequently billing guest stars before the regulars, and imagine how excited I was when revisiting the Davison era on video I found, mostly in Peter Grimwade-directed stories, that the guest cast often got preferential billing to the companions. Now, I had and have nothing against the companions, but you know, they were regulars, so that was fine for them and they were there every week. It was great to show deference to visiting guest stars, I thought, especially if they were people my mum recognised, like Beryl Reed and Neris Hughes and Richard Todd. Funny, though, I hadn't noticed their prominence in the closing credits first time around, and if, prior to collecting them on video, you'd have asked me about the 1980s credits, I'd have assumed they all went Doctor, Companions, Guest Cast in Order of Importance or Status, that's it. You know, the normal way. But no... Those mentioned, plus Stratford Johns in Four to Doomsday, Simon Rouse and Mary Morris in addition to Todd and Hughes in Kinder, James Warwick and Claire Clifford in Earthshock. Claire Clifford, really? Not even Timothy Dalton got that treatment, and he's James Bond. 
and Peter Wingard in Planet of Fire, as well as, by the way, the person who started all this, John Fraser, as the monitor in Logopolis, all trumped the companions come curtain call. I don't really understand my crusade to put the companions in their place. I really don't know where that came from, you know. Maybe it's because a lot of them hadn't been in big films or programmes my mum watched, and so I couldn't impress her with anything they had done. And I think the idea that Jackie Lane might be considered more important than Andre Morel, or that inexperienced young Matthew Waterhouse could lord it, metaphorically, over RSC veteran Emrys James, somehow irked me. Grange Hill seemed to get this right. The adult actors were always credited before the child actors, even in a child-centric episode, because, you know, grown-ups. I know Grange Hill stopped doing this eventually, but I was grown-up myself by then. And actually, there are some anomalous credits compositions over the years. The general pattern of the Hartnell era is a mixture of regulars, then guest cast, then guest cast are in order of appearance, but sometimes in order of importance. Then, when John Wiles arrives as producer in season three, it eventually settles into the Doctor first, then everyone else generally in order of appearance, although sometimes the order gets jumbled in admin, including companions, and that's a pattern that pretty much continues into the Troughton era, bar, it seems, the Space Pirates, which follows the Radio Times billings, certainly on episode two, of The Doctor, then the illustrious featured guest actors, Dudley Foster, Gordon Gostelow, Esmond Knight, etc., then the companions, and then the rest of the guest cast. Before we leave the 60s, though, how impossible is it not to love the credit Wotan gets in Hartnell's The War Machines, episodes 1 to 3, before the revelation at the end of part 4 that the voice belonged to War Machine operator Gerald Taylor and that Wotan was not an hypnotic supercomputer playing itself in its own biopic? And, and I'm saying and for a specific reason, and Wotan's is the only and credit in the entire classic series run. And for that, we must cherish it. For the Pertwee era, it's the Doctor, the Companions slash Regulars, then the Guest Cast in order of importance. This means the Master sometimes gets second billing if the Brigadier isn't in it, whilst Joe Grant, the more traditional companion figure, is initially fourth billed in her first season. She eventually moves up the credits, though, and the Brigadier down, whilst Yates and Benton, who start off sharing the fifth plate end up getting sent right to the bottom of the credits after nearly all of the guest cast in later stories like The Green Death and Invasion of the Dinosaurs, even though they have plenty to do in both. Planet of the Spiders finds them doing a bit better, with Richard Franklin as Mike actually getting his highest position, third billing after Pertwee and Sladen, on the episodes Nicholas Courtney isn't in. The Pertwee era anomaly, though, is the Ambassadors of Death, that man, John Abinary again, which does the Doctor and the two companions first, Liz and the Brigadier. Then we have the main guest actors, but they are in order of appearance and each gets a single credit. Then everybody else. That said, neither Dallas Cavell as Quinlan nor Cyril Shapps as Lennox are considered main guest star in all of their episodes, so sometimes they slip down the order. Complicated, I know, but it works, I promise. Oh, and then there is Inferno, which order-wise is nothing to write home about in this or any parallel universe you might find yourself in. However, 
when we do get to the fascist state with eye patches and firing squads ruled over by the visual effects department head, the actors playing their alternative selves find themselves credited as such. Brigade leader Lethbridge Stewart, director Stalman, etc. Only if their normal world version doesn't appear in that episode. So for most characters, it's an episode five thing. That means, though, that Liz Shaw, regular, does not get a credit in that episode. Caroline John is on the cast list, but only playing section leader Elizabeth Shaw. A similar thing, by the way, happens to our leading man. Not John Pertwee, but William Hartnell. And it happens only once. Whilst he retains his credit, even in episodes he isn't in, the two middle instalments of The Keys of Marinus, Mission to the Unknown, and various times when he's represented by a double or just a reprise from last week, for two episodes, and two episodes only in the entire history of the series, The Doctor, or Doctor Who, does not get a credit. For Hartnell is credited as Abbot of Amboise in episodes two and three of The Massacre. From Tom Baker's time onwards, it's Doctor, Companion, then guest cast in order of importance for the rest of the classic series, bar the odd 80s stories I've already mentioned, Legopolis, Fort Doomsday, Kinder, Earthshock and Planet of Fire, when an illustrious guest or two trumps the companions. Oh, and companions don't always get companion billing on their first story, only ascending up the credits when they become regulars. So Mark Strickson has to wait until Turlow has pretty much decided to stop trying to kill the Doctor to fully assimilate into the house style. Oh, and with all of this, there's of course the exception which proves the rule. The Invasion of Time, with returning 60s director Gerald Blake, who may be remembered how things were done on The Abominable Snowmen and so keeps it similar, lists the Doctor, then Leela, but then the guest cast in order of appearance mostly. The Mask of Mandragora decides that five of its guest stars, John Lorimore as Count Federico, Anthony Carrick as Captain Rossini, Norman Jones as Hieronymus, Gareth Armstrong as Giuliano and Tim Pickett-Smith as Marco, are equal guest leads and so juggles them about, although Jones gets a single caption to himself, whilst Armstrong and Pickett-Smith share, as do Lorimore and Carrick. And finally, Horror of Fang Rock also does the slightly odd thing of juggling the guest cast about in the last episode, as some, who were previously quite high on the credits, are either dead or die quickly and so drop down a bit, which allows Alan Rowe to ascend to second guest billing, which is frankly no less than he and his brilliant Colonel Skinsale deserve. I know, and I can't believe I just said all of that out loud either. The new series of the show has always had the regulars first, but the guest cast are sometimes in order of importance, but not always. Dalek has them in order of appearance, as does Fires of Pompeii, which leads to heavyweight guest actor Phil Davis being bottom of the credits, and a fair few more, but you know, I'm a busy man, I'm not going to check. Some episodes are just fortunate that their main guest actors appear early on and absolve us all of the need to do any head-scratching. Oh, this is top-of-the-head stuff from me, by the way, not a research dissertation. So, you know, don't write in and point out the odd anomalies which I know crop up on occasion. I'm aware what's there. I'm just trying to make this digestible. And the fact I'm having to make this disclaimer because I know someone is paused over a keyboard right now waiting to try and catch me out rather than just enjoy what I'm doing 
and give me the benefit of the doubt is why Doctor Who fans actually, fundamentally, deserve to never be truly happy. That said, it's not as if I haven't gone out of my way to look into this stuff in the past. A joyous addendum to the mixed billing on the 60s stuff came when I went to Birmingham Library one day to flick through old copies of the Radio Times. That, dear listener, was the teenage Toby's idea of a fun day out and he didn't have a girlfriend for ages. Why, do you ask? And I was delighted to discover that in the Troughton era, and as it turns out, some of the Hartnell era too, guest stars were given billing precedence over the regulars in that illustrious magazine's listings. And so Evil of the Daleks starred Patrick Troughton and Marius Goring, Theodore Maxtable, with John Bailey, Edward Waterfield, and Fraser Hines. Gosh. And there were even kind of and credits too. The Mythmakers was William Hartnell, with Maureen O'Brien, Peter Purvis, with Max Adrian as King Priam, with Barry Ingham. Okay, so that's a lot of withs and no ands, but still, it's the same principle. Hang on though, Francis White, who played Cassandra, receives no credit at all in the Radio Times, apparently at her own request. Michael Goff gets last billing in the Radio Times in The Celestial Toymaker after everyone, but he is in capital letters and featuring Michael Goff as the Toymaker. So you could be important without being the programme star. I like that. Some movies over the years have used the introducing credit for a young actor in a breakthrough role, and Doctor Who has not been immune. Catherine Schofield gets one for her first episode of The Keys of Marinus in the Radio Times listings. The first thing I'd done, though, of course, when I looked at Radio Times's, was to head to my current obsession. I flicked to Fury from the Deep, my favourite story, even though I'd never seen it nor heard the soundtrack, but that's all for another podcast. And it starred Patrick Troughton and Victor Madden, Robson, with Fraser Hines, Deborah Watling. Brilliant. I mean, I was slightly disappointed that John Abinery didn't have a guest star nod, but I guess that was to be expected. It was early days and he wasn't a sort of big film star, even though he was a respected actor known in the profession. And on I flicked past episode two, and then to episode three, where, oh, suddenly, oh, it's now starring Patrick Troughton with Victor Madden, John Abernary. Did, did I make that happen? With the power of my mind and because I'm the centre of the universe? Oh, I hope so. Perhaps my partner's right. If you say it out loud long enough, you make it happen. I know this isn't true, by the way, but hey, it's a good story. Maybe it's your favourite. So actually, reading credits out loud, that's fine. Not wrong with that. Hurts no one. And no one, <clears throat> no one needs to know about it. I'm cool with that. Of course, the new series benefits the stars by having the names of the regulars at the front. Now, that's a marvellous thing. And it leads to some special credits, including and credits, for returning former stars like Billy Piper and Bernard Cribbins. In fact, it was high times Cribbins got some opening titles recognition, as he does, on the end of time. He even missed out when the Stolen Earth and Journey's End decided to do the hitherto unrepeated thing of having some of the guest actors, generally those who were former regulars or returning characters or from Torchwood, though Penelope Wilton as Harriet Jones is actually top build of the lot, who are credited during the opening action where the producers and directors normally get their nod. They're all there, from Noel Clarke to Adjoa Ando, but no Cribbins or Jacqueline King, 
who've both been a vital part of the success of the season about to come to a close. Still, I was lucky enough to get a preview episode of The Stolen Earth, and none of the names appear on that, so it was clearly a decision taken very late in the day, and one I applaud. Uh, this, by the way, is a practice common to US television. Most of the featured guest cast get name checks over the opening moments, often in single captions. This is partly because of the egregious practice of closing credits going at the speed of light. These days, typically, UK programmes have the worst of both worlds. The closing credits zoom by too quickly, but the guest actors don't get front of programme billing. So, like any thespian who's played the pantomime horse will tell you, they lose out at both ends. Of course, the internet now makes up for this a little bit. It needs to, with more and more streaming services requiring the dexterity and reflexes of a twelve-armed cheetah on speed and some ancient incantation in order to somehow not make the credits vanish before you've had a chance to watch them. It's almost like they don't want us to read, and it is what will almost certainly make me kill again. But yes, you can look on IMDb. Although the day the world realises that it is an extremely flawed and often inaccurate resource, taken as gospel by far too many people, will come to be known by future historians as the day that was far too bloody long in coming. Or the programme's website itself. It's not the same. You want to see your name in lights, not footnotes. As jobs in the acting profession become less frequent, less well paid and less rewarding, in and out, no rehearsals or company spirit, a three-second solo caption with your name spelt right and rendered in a decent size, surely that's not too much to ask for a self-employed magic dispenser with no pension who's eschewed a life of financial security in order to trade in stardust. Yeah, there should always be just enough neon. This week's episode, Credits Where Credits Are Due, was written and performed by me, Toby Haydoke. Screw it. It also starred Toby Haydoke, Toby Haydoke, Toby Haydoke, and Toby Haydoke. It was produced and directed by Toby Haydoke too, and edited by Toby Haydoke. Actually, see, that's where credits run into trouble. Never trust anything where everything is done by one person. It looks naff, either like they have no friends, or that no one with any skill wants to be involved in their project. So, with that in mind, the original music was composed and performed by Dominic Glynn. And tonight's episode also starred in Dreamcasting, John Abeneri, Marius Goring, Richard Todd, Peter Wingard, Kevork Malikian, Christian Rodska, The Companions, and Paul Winfield. And Votan. These podcasts would not be possible without the support of patrons who include Richard Patey, Phil Pascoe, Russell Parker, Mark Trevor Owen, Dave Owen, Jeremiah O'Connor, Justin E. Monaghan, James Miller, Nick Mellish, Daryl McLean, Nate Lynch, Jacob Lumley, Andrew Llewellyn, Andrew Lester, Hendrik Korzeniowski, Andy Kitching, Matthew Kilburn, William Keith, Jeff Kaplan, Judith Jackson, Christopher Joyce, Robert Jewell, Paul Ingerson, David Hughes, Gregory Hudson, Darren Howard, Matthew Houliston, Sam Hollingsworth, Simon Hodges, Duncan Harvey, and Steve Hatcher. If you would like to become a patron, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke, where you get releases in advance, you get bonus and exclusive material, and look, it's a fairly egalitarian system, although there are 
badges for higher tiers, but all the material is available to everybody starting at £3 a month and you get a 10% discount even on that if you sign up for a year. A one-off payment system is also possible at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. But look, I know times are tough and I just appreciate you listening to these things. However, if you enjoy that experience, I would be really grateful if you could do something that costs no money at all and that is to give me five stars on iTunes and Apple and indeed any podcast outlet out there that you use and perhaps a couple of lines of review as well. Uh, any any sort of really positive feedback does help to draw people and uh, make me stand out from the crowd and it's just helpful and I'm very grateful to those of you who do so. So if you haven't done that yet, uh, please just pop along and do that. Thanks very much indeed and uh, I look forward to speaking to you some other time and I hope, if nothing else, I've made the past 40 minutes go quicker than they otherwise would have done. Take care. Thank you.